Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Peter J. Lightheart. We talk about his book, A House for My Name. It's a survey of the Old Testament. It's now on Canon Plus in audio, so you got to listen to that. Canon Calls has always functioned, or I've always sought to want to demonstrate the life of a generalist, someone who is curious and to a broad number of subjects. The more things you can be grateful for, that's awesome fodder for gratitude to God. And I think Dr. Lightheart exemplifies that generalism to a T. It's exactly the kind of thing I think Christians ought to be up to. Before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is also on video. Every few episodes we've been filming and putting them on Canon Plus behind the paywall. As a bonus value option, I can't recommend getting a subscription to Canon Plus enough. I highly, highly recommend it. The more you support us at Canon Press through Canon Plus, the more awesome things we can do. There's all kinds of great content coming in the next year because people are subscribed and they're supporting us. So if you haven't done that, check it out, mycanonplus.com. You can use discount code REHAB99 at checkout, and your first month of Canon Plus will be just 99 cents. Now, without further ado, meet Dr. Peter J. Lightheart. Now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Peter Lightheart, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. Well, welcome to town. You said you've been here a little a little while. Yeah. Uh, I wanted the big reason I wanted you on was a house for my name is now on audio after several years. Uh, read by Wade Stotts and it's on Canon Plus. And so for folks who haven't read it yet, encourage them they can now go listen to it. I wanted to ask you. Um, I think what I've heard you say several times is this is through new eyes for dummies. Is that, that correct? That's how I introduced it in oh, okay. the in the book itself. Yeah. Okay, and in the book itself. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so through new eyes, book by Jim Jordan. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe how your book relates to that one? You said it's for dummies, but sure. Yeah, uh, Jim and I got to know each other back in the early '80s, and we started working together in various ways. And uh, his his major work is a book called Through New Eyes. Developing a biblical view of the world is the subtitle. Okay, and he uh, lays out what he calls the furniture of the world, the way the world symbolizes God, and the way the world is an, a network of symbols where things symbolize each other. Uh, and it, I found it, it's it's been uh, uh, crucial for my own Bible reading and Bible study. Uh, all of my, I've written a number of commentaries. All of my commentaries are growing out of what I learned from Jim in that book. Um, and so I had been, te- I think by the time I wrote, uh, house for my name, I'd been teaching at new St. Andrews for a couple of years okay. and teaching basically Bible survey using through new eyes. Um, uh, but, um, uh, I don't know if I had the idea or somebody suggested doing a, a Bible survey, an old Testament survey. And, uh, the only way I could think of doing it would be a somewhat simplified version of, of Jim's book, which I think is a, a classic, uh, one of the. I think it, it sounds like hyperbole, but I think it's one of the best books written about the Bible ever. Yeah. Um, so um, that was the that was the aim. the 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 target audience yep. was uh, like middle school students and high school students. Okay. 
Uh, I have adults who read the book and tell me that I missed the target. And <laughs> they have some difficulty figuring yeah. out what I'm doing. Uh, Joshua Apple, a number of years ago, put together a, a study guide, yeah. and uh, answer guide to the questions that come at the end of each section. And so I think that's been helpful for using it for students. I guess that one of the things that Jim helped me do and what I try to do in the book is the, um, I, I had this experience with students when I was teaching. Um, students would come into New St. Andrews with lots of Bible information. They had been to Sunday school. They, these are church kids. They know the Bible, but nobody's ever put pieces together. Okay. That was my experience growing up in the church. I had disconnected Bible stories, but I didn't really know the relationship, the chronological or any other kind of relationship between, say, Elisha and Daniel okay. uh, and the different kind of settings that they're in and how all the pieces fit together. And so what I, what I try and do in the book is, again, replicate what Jim did for me is help, help readers to see how the Bible forms a, a, a single narrative, a single unit, how it's an interconnected narrative, inter interconnected uh, system of types and shadows and symbols. Uh, and all of it, of course, pointing to Jesus, right? Who is the as as he himself taught is the is the central theme. His his suffering and glory is the central theme of the whole scripture. I I first read it when I was in Bible college. I was in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. At uh, I studied under Joe Rigney at the time okay, yeah. before his presidency there. Yeah. And uh, I remember getting a house for my name and and at Bethlehem it's it's a it's a little bit more of a stricter interpretive key and so um you actually spend time in in the introduction of the book i remember of kind of sifting through various options right of of interpretation and so just having learned under kind of a stricter uh key i remember reading a house for my name and and maybe a few other jim jordan books really felt like i was wearing my hat backwards yeah. theologically yeah and, bashing mailboxes. Yeah. I was having very a lot of fun, but also learning uh, maybe like these were intended to fit together, like yeah, you were saying. Right, They're not right. disparate elements. Right, right. Yeah, I think that um, I, I, would, I, I would dispute somewhat the idea that uh, there's, a, there's a difference of rigor. Okay. That, that uh, a strictly historical grammatical kind of hermeneutic is more rigorous. Um, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's the it's a question of what level or what what you're being rigorous about. Okay. Uh, I mean, it, historically, the all kinds of typological readings have been rooted in the literal. So there's always right. been attention to the grammatical and historical significance. But uh, if we take Jesus at his word, then that can't be the even the basic meaning of the scriptures. Right. Uh, it's it's one it's one dimension of meaning. But if we stop there, it's uh, I don't think it's a matter of being overly rigorous. I think it's a matter of being uh, uh, having a narrow, narrow understanding of what the scriptures are about. So I don't think the typological, Christological dimensions are extraneous, or you know, sometimes their typology um, is seen as a kind of aesthetic right. um, a riff on right. the literal meaning of the text. But Jesus says the whole thing's about me, and so that's got to be our primary hermeneutic. Right. Um, the way that I've, I've come to talk about it recently is to think in terms of mentors. Uh, we all learn how to read and how to read well from mentors, uh, model readers. Uh, and that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the model reader. And if we want to know how to read the scriptures in their depth, not just to, not just to be accurate in what 
the scriptures say, but to to get the depths of what the scriptures say, we need to follow what follow the way Jesus Jesus taught us to read. I think that's right. The, uh, I, I hopefully meant a little bit more like narrow, yeah, limited yeah, yeah, scope yeah. of interpretation. Yeah. Um, so, uh, is there anything? Is there any part of this book that you hear the most feedback on? Are there any connections that you would say um, this comes back more than than the rest? I don't think so. I, I think the 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 feedback I get, which is not a, a huge amount, the feedback I get is just that it's illuminating in the in the way that I hope it, it would be that it helps people to connect things together and to see an overall um, uh, logic and and uh, movement to 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 the scriptures and to see it as a single single book. That's good. I uh, I think I I myself have always thought uh, or have always enjoyed just uh the garden imagery over and over again mm. you know just that sort of repetition and i think it's um i can't remember if it's in there or if it's in your first and second samuel commentary it's surely in there but uh where saul goes out to his first battle mm-hmm. and he does well mm-hmm. he does garden the yeah. garden and and his adversary uh his name is nahash nahash yeah. yes that's right yeah and then even even uh i believe Two in yours, uh, talking David and Goliath and Goliath's yeah. armor, yeah. pointing these details yeah. that are really helpful primers of right. how to read better. Right. Um, that, like everything, that's something I learned from Jim Jordan. He uh, he had a kind of axiom that he would cite: everything in the scriptures are rooted in Genesis one through three, yeah. and that doesn't mean that every single thing is there explicitly. But everything in the scriptures uh, grows out of what happens there. So uh, the major environments of the Bible are all uh, either variations on the cosmic environment that's set up in Genesis one, the th- you know three story universes like the universe of Genesis one, or there some variation on the garden. You have the garden that becomes a tabernacle and a temple. You have gardens that become models for the land. You have gardens that become desolated gardens, wildernesses that are uh, fallen gardens, uh, and yeah, then you have villain characters that all have some relationship with uh, the serpent. Like, uh, I mean, the the thing with uh, the detail with Goliath is the description of his armor. He's he uh, he's dressed in scale scales. armor, yeah, scales. Uh, which is you know, you think that that's kind of a that's kind of a uh, a throwaway description, and in some ways it is, although. Uh, um, the Bible doesn't often give descriptions of that kind of of that kind of thing. Right. It's uh, in contrast to Homer, who's uh, <laughs> gives a lot of detail about the armaments right. of his warriors, and that just doesn't happen in the Bible. We know we don't really know what uh, David's armor looked like. We know some of the some of the things that he had, but that detail stands out because it's a detail that's not often given, and it connects it connects Goliath, the the metal man, the man dressed in scales with the serpent. He he dies by a head crushing, which is the way serpents are supposed to die. Right. So uh, yeah, those 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 little details uh, often go back in some way to Genesis one through three. That's been kind of a rule of thumb to see how things uh, go back to the first Adam, and the first Adam also always, of course, is a foreshadowing of the last Adam. Right. Yeah. Which is something, as you mentioned earlier, this is this is something Jesus also mentioned. Right. Right. We we got that from him. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, 
What, just if I could throw one other thing in that sure, I've been noticing please. recently. I've been preaching on Acts. And, uh, you know, the place in the Gospels where Jesus teaches his disciples about his suffering and glory, the suffering and glory of the Christ in all the scriptures is right at the end of Luke. Okay. And um, uh, his disciples at that point have not gotten the message. But then as you extend that into Acts, virtually every sermon that the apostles give in Acts refers to that Luke 24 passage. Uh, Paul is proving, uh, proving that Jesus is the Christ from the scriptures. And uh, there's constantly citing the pass these passages and saying, this is about the suffering and glory of Christ. That kind of phrasing from Luke 24 becomes the hermeneutic of the apostles in Acts. And uh, yeah. uh, when the spirit comes, then their eyes are illuminated and they can see what the scriptures were about all along. Right, so you don't get something like what Stephen did in his little sermonic right. thing of reinterpreting yeah. these events in right. light of the Christ. Right, right, Without exactly. the Spirit. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's very good. I, uh, I mentioned as well, I wanted to kind of, not only to introduce you to our, to our people, but I want to get to know you more. If anybody has ever just Googled your books, your light art books, um, the genre spectrum is broad. So even just a canon, the even just at the books a canon offer, uh, like a kids book, the Proverbs kids books. Um, you have brightest heaven of invention, brightest heaven of invention, which is Shakespeare. Uh, deep comedy, which is sort of uh, lit crit meets Trinitarian theology. <laughs> Trinitarian theology. Uh, you have your first and second Samuel uh commentary mm. uh what who are you what, what yeah. <laughs> who has this many interests and enough to write books on them yeah uh yeah it it's it's an optical illusion <laughs> okay uh, okay but i i i'm uh i'm always i'm always doing theology okay. no matter what uh what genre it looks like i'm working in so i'm always doing theology okay so i'm if i'm if i'm working on a shakespeare play the things that I get interested in in a Shakespeare play are the theological dimensions of it. Okay. Uh, and I'm so, always doing exegesis. I mean, I, um, okay. uh, I'm always working, for, almost always working from a text and trying to think through uh, how a text is put together. So again, a Shakespeare play to me is, is working on a Shakespeare play is very much like working on, um, working on a book of the Bible. Uh, I'm trying to see patterns. I'm trying to see how uh, in order within the, Within the story, uh, I'm trying to figure out how pieces fit together. Um, one of the things that inspired me to start working on Shakespeare, I, I, Brightest Heaven of Invention came out of some teaching I did uh, way back in the early 90s. Uh, I started teaching homeschoolers uh, in, I was a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, and started teaching Shakespeare to homeschoolers. And um, I had begun to get interested in literature again, partly because I had begun to read scriptures, the scriptures in a more literary way. Okay. And that led me back to uh, things I'd studied in high school and college to Shakespeare. And uh, things started popping out at me, you know, biblical patterns of thought and biblical allusions within, within uh, Western literature. So it was, um, it was partly recognizing how deeply the Bible had influenced uh, Shakespeare and other Western literature fi literary figures that that led me back into that. Um, so yeah, for so, defending Constantine, 
This is an interesting one. Yeah. What, is there a... <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's less... Uh, I guess that's less exegetical than... Uh, yeah, that, that was... Uh, um, Defending Constantine grew out of um, the final chapter of Against Christianity, which is a canon book. Yeah. Uh, and Against Christianity, I'm against everything. And then the last chapter, I'm for Constantine. Uh, and it's it's a brief it's a brief defense of Christendom. Okay. Uh, and Aaron Aaron Wrench yep. um, suggested that uh, I could get a, a a larger publisher to interested in a book on Constantine. Um, what interested me in the Constantine work was a the theological side of it, but I as I worked on it, I got interested in the historical. Yeah. It's a it's a, a very dramatic historical moment. A turning point, obviously, in Western civilization and in the history of the church, um, but it was yeah, it was coming out of that um, against Christianity chapter that Aaron suggested. He he uh, got me in touch with InterVarsity Press, and I was able to get a a contract with them. Yeah, because I I assume lest there are any anybody watching that thinks that's sort of normal to have heard you say. I'm against most of this, but for Constantine, <laughs> you know, I grew up in sort of just non-denominational churches. Right. And, uh, you know, that I remember book groups going on about how he is the guy that ruined it. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's kind of common knowledge, you know, if Constantine, the little bits of Christianity that we think are suspicious probably came from Constantine. Yeah. If we could get back to the new Testament, yeah. that's yeah. the ideal. You you don't seem to think that. Can you can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah. Um, well, um, yeah. That that's basically what that's the target for the book. Um, okay. Defending Constantine was not the title that I would have chosen. That was the publisher's title. What did but, you have in mind? Uh, I wanted to call it Rome Baptized. Okay. Uh, but they, which is the title of the final chapter of the book, I think. Okay. One of the chapters of the book is Rome Baptized. Um, the publisher told me. Um, Nobody could understand what the book was about by reading that title. They'd have to read the book. And my thought was, yeah, that's, yes. that's the point. It's to <laughs> entice them. Yeah, right. But they, they were looking for a title that would uh, kind of give away the, give away the punchline sure. on the cover. Um, so, yeah, it's targeted exactly that idea, which is very widespread, both in popular Christianity and among uh, theologians, uh, that uh, Constantine is... Uh, Constantine himself as an emperor, but also Constantine as a symbol of the church's compromise with the Roman Empire and its fall from its the early the purity and innocence of the early centuries. It falls into compromise and uh, becomes worldly, begins to exercise worldly power. Um, that's a very very common storyline. So that that's what I was uh, that's what I was going after, um, and um, the. Uh, yeah, several several uh, uh, several aspects of that. Um, the uh, the reason I didn't want to, uh, reason I would prefer not to have called it defending Constantine because it's not a it's not a thoroughgoing defense of everything Constantine sure. did. Uh, I think there are some ways in which the church was adversely affected by its relationship with the Roman Empire. That's I think that's true. Overall, I think what's going on is um, the Lord is. Uh, faithful to the blood of the martyrs. He hears the cry of the martyr blood and he vindicates them. And the martyrs who gave their lives in, in uh, uh, faithfulness to Jesus um, are honored. I mean, the, the, one of the dramatic moments in, uh, in Constantine's life and in, um, in his life story is the, uh, at, at the uh, 
Council of Nicaea. I don't remember the name of the martyr, but uh, not a not a martyr in the sense that he'd been killed for his faith, but his eyes had been poked out by Roman torturers. And uh, Constantine kissed the vacant eye sockets of this martyr. And I think, um, isn't that what we want? You know, we want rulers yeah. to acknowledge Jesus uh, and acknowledge those who've witnessed to Jesus. So, um, so you know, I think the overall storyline, uh, in spite of flaws in Constantine's personal character, the overall, overall storyline is the vindication of the martyrs uh, and really the fulfillment of what um, the gospel is about. The gospel is a royal announcement about Jesus Christ as king, calling all people, all individuals, and all nations to do homage to him. And that comes to a partial, imperfect fulfillment in Constantine and in Western Christendom. Um, and it will continue to come to fulfillment as the gospel spreads throughout the world. So that, um, that's the basic kind of theological uh, argument of the book. The historical argument, uh, one of the things I, I noticed really early, uh, it's, it's been common for Christians to doubt the sincerity of Constantine's conversion. Yep. Was he actually a Christian? Um, virtually no ancient historian doubts that. Okay. Um, uh, they all say that he was, he, there was some kind of profound and sincere change in Constantine. And um, the reason they say that is because the, when you think about the, this is just one example, you think about this kind of historical setting that he's in. He's a, he's a Roman commander. He is one of several who are governing the empire. And in the midst of a battle, he changes his insignia from the insignia of one of the Roman gods yeah. to the insignia of Christ, to a cross. That looks like just uh, propaganda to us. But for a, an ancient Roman, that's a huge right. shift. Uh, it means that he has confidence that this Christian God, whom he may not know very well at that point, this Christian God is real, and this Christian God will bless him if he serves him. Um, so that, that kind of what, what we think of as a superficial change is really profound for an ancient, for an ancient person. I do think it's that the turn of mind as well that I mentioned that, that there's sort of a sees stately power as worldly yeah. and does distrust things like that. It's, it's something about, and a, an off fortiori argument that you made in the book, I think still sticks with me and it went along the lines of if we're, if we are to use. Um, spiritual powers or spiritual, we're throwing down spiritual ideas and everything else. Those being the bazookas, then mm. how much more mm. uh, sort of state power or those are actually the smaller units of power. Right, right. And so if we're, if we're to be trusted with the spiritual bazookas, yeah, right. we should be able to know how yeah. uh, civil power works, yeah, right, right. which is a much smaller issue. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's still stuck with me. And I, I, uh, it's very interesting. It feels like you and Pastor Wilson have been kind of talking about this sort of thing, Christendom, his mere Christendom, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now the hot topic of today is nationalism, yeah. or Christian nationalism, and theocracy yeah. rising, yeah. and yeah. all of these things. And it's a very funny way that the sort of the mainstream conversation has parked itself right in front of mm -hmm. your doors. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I imagine you have plenty of content, or you have, you, these are, this is not something you're new to thinking about. Yeah, it it is a uh, definitely the the whole spectrum of things has has shifted. Um, 
I mean, uh, when I started becoming active in writing on uh, on public questions, uh, it was early '90s. I started writing fairly regularly for First Things magazine. Okay, and uh, I was kind of an outlier at First Things because First Things was Richard John Newhouse, who, who founded First Things, was a defender of liberal democracy. So this was a this was a uh, it's not not uh, not a Christian political system, but it's a system that's compatible with a Christian witness and should be defended. Um, and the the premise was that um, there's kind of a neutral playing field. The government is just there as a kind of as an umpire right. to ensure that everybody plays fair. And uh, that was Newhouse defended that system. I think Newhouse himself became more skeptical about that as time went on. Okay. But everybody today realizes. But who's paying attention realizes that there is no political system that's neutral. Right. And um, that's something that uh, Cornelius Van Til was saying, wasn't talking about politics per se, but he was saying on philosophical and theological questions back in the mid 20th century, the reconstructions like uh, R.J. Rushdoony and Gary North right. were saying on political topics, there is no political neutrality. But now, yeah, it seems like in the last, uh, particularly in the last five or six years, right. that's become just common knowledge. Everybody realizes this, right. which, uh, which is an improvement. Yeah. You, you, see, you, you see what, you see what the stakes are because, uh, right. and what the choices are and, um, that the, the middle ground of trying to have a, uh, trying to have a, the only way that, that, that kind of neutral system worked at all or appeared to work at all was because it wasn't really neutral. Right. You, you still, you still had the vestiges of a Christian morality that were, that were uh, setting the limits, the boundaries of of uh, the th of what was thinkable. Right now, now that's not the case at all. I think it was it was largely not the case even in the eighties and nineties. But I think it, it's obvious now that those boundaries are gone, and uh, the the uh, the choices become very stark. Yeah, I assume that has to be the case for education as well. There's probably sure. not a lot of convincing you have to do about taking your kids out of public school whereas yeah. 10 15 years ago that was right. sort of a yeah yeah very contested topic yeah. it seems like the options are very stark as you were saying now right right with education too yeah um you mentioned first things i didn't know you had started writing that early um yeah. it interests me there was there's always been a for anyone who has the feast drift to james jordan mm. which i think came out of Wiffenstock. Mm -hmm. yes um so all of these essays in honor of James Jordan. Yeah. Rusty Reno has the introduction. Yes. And I think he says something to the effect of one of the most profound Bible teachers of the century, yeah. possibly. I may yeah. be overdoing that, but it was shocking to read. Yeah. Uh, how in the world did that come to be? Yeah. Um, that, goes, that goes quite a ways back. Um, I, I first met Rusty Reno. Um, Jim and I both met him at a conference in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, many years ago, okay. sponsored by a PCA church. Um, uh, uh, Rusty was still, I think he was still finishing his PhD at Yale, but teaching at Creighton University at the time. Okay. Uh, and he had a friend who was part of the church that was sponsoring the, the, uh, uh, the conference. And uh, so Rusty attended that conference, heard, heard Jim and me, uh, speak and uh, i think rusty was just blown away i don't think he'd ever heard anybody teach the bible like jim taught it and uh I, I, rusty's never said this to me but i think that that's 
probably one of the factors that goes went into his interest in uh, theological interpretation. I mean, uh, before he became editor at First Things, he was uh, he started uh, the Brazos Theological okay. Commentary yep. series. He was he was the the primary editor of the Brazos Theological Commentary series, and I um, I think that Jim's Jim was part of the I wouldn't say Jim was the only, but Jim was part of the inspiration for that. Yeah, if anyone looks at the that list of authors in that series, yeah. it's a very. Uh, I mean, were they talking to you? Or you know, it seems like it's a very fascinating group yeah. of interpreters. Yeah, it, it's not your uh, everyday crossway level or, or not even that just these are not always guys that are so very neat and tidy yeah check the box people yeah yeah that um i had no hand in the series apart from writing a couple okay. of volumes of it so you did first and second kings and first second chronicles first second chronicles yeah. okay so I, I finished the triad of first and seconds in the old testament that's right which is a life goal yeah i've got a commentary on first and second same right. first and second kings first and second chronicles so um i can die happy um, yeah, so yeah, the, the idea was to get theologians who are not biblical scholars to okay. comment on the biblical text. So they have um, the Ocelot Pelican, for example, mainly a church historian. I think he did the book of Acts. Uh, Robert Jensen, yep, pretty sure did Ezekiel. Um, Stanley Hauerwas, yep, <laughs> did a kind of eccentric commentary on Matthew. The, the, the result is, uh, as, a, as commentaries go, the result can be kind of uneven. Sure. I mean, Hauerwas insightful comments, but he's not really commenting on Matthew as a whole. Sure. Well, there's some really good commentaries in that series. I think, uh, strangely, uh, Paul Griffith's uh, commentary on the Song of Songs. Okay. Um, he doesn't know Hebrew, so he com <laughs> he commented on the Vulgate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Vulgate is remarkably close to the Hebrew, and okay. it's it's a really good commentary on the Song of Songs, in okay. spite of not really dealing with the Hebrew text. Okay. Yeah, and I I even mentioned your name because it's I often felt like man, it was through your writing that I was introduced to Jensen, or uh, yeah. most likely, or Hauerwas, or yeah. those guys. Um, you were always sort of that uh, vehicle to those. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your education? How did you, what schools did you go to and, and why did you choose those? Yeah. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at Hillsdale College okay. in Michigan. Um, uh, that was, uh, well, why did I choose that? At the time, I chose it because I thought I had a chance of making the basketball team. <laughs> okay. Uh, That's right. I, I do remember a Steph Curry blog from like yeah, yeah. 2015 yes. on yeah. First Things. I I think I've probably written on Curry a couple of times. But, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I had aspirations playing college basketball, and they Hillsdale had a horrible team. Okay. For a number of years, and I thought I had a chance, and I it turned out I didn't. But okay. Um, this was back in the late '70s. Hillsdale already had a reputation of being a conservative. It didn't have the same reputation of being a Christian school that it now has, but it was politically conservative. I grew up in a politically conservative home. Uh, both of my brothers had attended Hillsdale. Okay. And so it was kind of the natural place for me to go. Plus, I had a shot at basketball. Um, but what I, I, what I ended up studying there, I, um, uh, I realized that I, uh, it was during my time at Hillsdale that I realized I, I can write. I kind of knew that before, but it became solidified that, that that's a, a, um, a God-given gift. 
And so I majored in English, uh, majored, uh, double majored in history, uh, wrote a lot for the uh, college newspaper, started out as a sports writer and then did okay. other kinds of things for the college newspaper. So that was a, a kind of a general liberal arts education. Yeah. Um, my, my theology training, um, I was already beginning to get interested in theology while I was in college, mainly through uh, a PCA pastor. I, I was Lutheran at the okay. time, but my uh, my future wife, when I first met her, was uh, uh, going to a PCA church, and uh, her her pastor fed me a bunch of stuff to read. Okay. So I was, I, I, my interest in theology was being reawakened. I had I had uh, as a boy I'd wanted to be a pastor, and that okay. had been displaced by a basketball career for a yeah, time. Right. Uh, and so that reawakened my interest in theology. I went to Westminster Seminary in the mid '80s. Uh, Westminster, um, uh, I think, at that time certainly had the reputation of being the most academically um, rigorous and both rigorous, reformed, but also have it had this uh, creative side to it. With um, uh, John Frame, he was not teaching there when I was there, but there was a lot of influence from John Frame. Vern Poitras was one of my one of my professors. Okay. Richard Richard uh, Gaffin, um, and there was a there was a kind of ferment of reformed theology, but not not um, not simply um, maintaining uh, maintaining a tradition, but deepening the tradition, trying to trying to grapple with some uh, trying to grapple with uh, other traditions and so on. So I'd, I went to Westminster because I uh, I I was I didn't intend to be a pastor at that point. I was intending to get a degree that would prepare me for an academic like academic career, and okay. I thought Westminster would be the best seminary to do that. Okay. Um, and then I was I was out of school for a number of years, mostly as a pastor. Okay. And then went back to school to do my PhD at uh, Cambridge. And uh, a couple of reasons for Cambridge. One, uh, then be- because the British system. In the British system, you don't do coursework for a PhD. Okay. At, least in, at least at Cambridge and Oxford, and some some other places you may, but the Oxford system is you do a dissertation. That is your that is your doctoral program. Okay. So I I was confident that I could do my PhD in a in a short time. Okay. I know I could write it, uh, write something adequate fast, um, and so it, rather than spending four or five years doing it, I was able to get it done in three. Okay. Um, and then I also wanted to work with John Milbank, who was my doctoral supervisor. I had come across his work. What did you write on, by the way? Uh, I wrote on baptism. Okay. Um, okay. But my book, uh, A Priesthood of the Plebes, uh, that was published by Whippenstock, okay. is, my, is my doctoral dissertation. Okay. And that was under Milbank? It was under Milbank. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, my, initial, my initial idea, uh, Milbank, I, I was... I think the only book he had published at that point was Theology and Social Theory, which is a very sophisticated theological critique of the social sciences. Okay. Um, and I was I wanted to do something similar with uh, ritual studies, uh, a sub sub uh, discipline within cultural anthropology. Okay. And so I went to I went to uh, Cambridge intending to work on ritual studies. Uh, spent the first three or four months reading cultural anthropology and said, 
and said, I don't want to spend three years reading cultural anthropology. Who, so, who, are, who are some people you were reading? Mary Douglas was one. Um, uh, there's a. Is this where you met Gerard? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember where I met Gerard. Okay. Uh, who, who's the, there's a. Uh, Rappaport is another major figure in uh, ritual studies. Okay. Um, there's a Turner, Victor Turner. That's the name I'm okay. trying to get. Victor Turner wrote a number of studies um, uh, where he laid out a, a basic sequence of uh, of uh, ritual sequence that he that he said was kind of universal among okay. cultures. Uh, there's an old Dutch book about rites of passage that uh, has a um, does something similar. So um, uh, Marcel Moos um, and some older uh, some older writers like that. So I was, I was reading a fair bit of cultural anthropology okay. and decided I did I did not want to do my dissertation in cultural anthropology. Okay. So I shifted to baptism. Okay. Um, and used used the ritual studies work that I had done, trying to think through questions about baptism. Um, I so I had planned at some point during the interview. I wanted to ask you about Rene Girard. In Brightest Heaven Invention, I think he gets a footnote, and then also in Deliver from the Elements. So, uh, you said you don't remember where you ran into him. I can probably, uh, uh, I think this is right. Uh, for for twenty five years, um, Jim Jordan hosted a conference in Florida okay. under his Biblical Horizons um, organization, uh, and uh, uh, one of the regular speakers there was Rich Bledsoe, who's okay. a PCA minister in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. And I'm pretty sure that it was Rich that first uh, uh, was reading uh, Gerard and brought it to our attention. And it, the the Biblical Horizons conferences were always tiny. Uh, uh, I mean, relatively tiny. We, we probably maxed out at 60 or 70 people a few okay. years. And that's because uh, one of the pastors brought his whole youth group down. Okay. So uh, for a few years, it turned into a youth conference. Okay. But it was, uh, there were, there were, a, 15 or 20 came together virtually every year for a couple of decades. And so there was, um, and it was uh, very much, uh, a, it was, it had kind of a workshop feel. So everyone would have something to present, but then we'd, we were interacting over it. And at this point, it's very hard to remember sure. who came up with what, because <laughs> it, we were, it, we were all, yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, Jim Jordan was the brain and we were all participating in Jim Jordan's brain. That's, that's the way that ended up working. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was Rich Bledsoe that first introduced Gerard okay. to, uh, to the group. And so we started, we started thinking, uh, using Gerard a good bit in, in, uh, various ways. It's, uh, when, when, when I was first introduced to him, it was in, uh, Professor Rigney's Shakespeare class. Oh yeah. And we read Harold Bloom. Yeah. Your book. Yeah. Bryce Heaven of Invention and we read um Theater of Envy. Theater of Envy. And it was very interesting just to watch um the starkest felt like Bloom and Renee. Yeah. They just Harold never like felt like very rarely touched down on anything. You know, he would just sort of <laughs> hover over Hamlet and wonder 
it's meaningful, but we're not sure why. <laughs> and then you see Gerard is out like ex his exegesis is yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, he has this sort of, uh, he has a sort of a uh, B story of like whether or not he's becoming a Christian on his way to becoming a Christian. Mm-hmm. I think he right. basically says, uh, the tragedies sort of send him, but something happens where he's able to go from Hamlet to Macbeth. Mm. Are these the same people at all? Or, you know, something mm. seems to have changed. Uh, can you just, what, what do you think of his work? I, I, I almost wondered if, if uh, someone who's been really moved by Gerard, it seems like he would have shown up more in Bride of, Bride of Seven Inventions. So that was always intriguing yeah. to me. Is there, do you have, in distinct the distinctions between him and yeah well I know I know that Gerard I was already familiar with Gerard okay I'm pretty sure when I wrote uh, Brightest Heaven Invention he does show up I think in uh, Much Ado in your yeah, chapter on Much yeah, Ado right uh, I mean I was already aware of his uh, uh, the notions of mimetic desire and rivalries that that uh, arise from mimetic desires um uh, there's a there is a story in uh, um, <laughs> I can't remember the title of my own book. Uh, 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 Wise words. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a story in Wise Words that's a scapegoat story. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> which I, I, I basically it's a something about the stranger. I can't remember. That's an there's another word in there. Okay. I can't remember the full title. But it's about this blind man that shows up in a town and eventually is cast. He's the he's the scapegoat of the story. Okay. So and when I was writing those, I was already familiar with. Okay. Uh, with Gerard. Um, I think that Gerard is, um, um, I guess, I guess I'll, uh, uh, do kind of pluses and minuses. I think then, um, what I found really useful in Gerard is, is a, um, I think the psycholo- there's a psychological depth to Gerard that I think is really profound. Yeah. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a kind of coherence to his theory um, that makes it uh, makes it very uh, seductive. Yes, and I, I don't, I don't. That can that sounds like it has negative connotations, and I guess it does eventually. But that yeah. that you think, okay, I've got this, and now everything is everything is clear. I can sure. everything fits into this, uh, and a lot does. I mean, he can he can explain a lot of things. Um, and I've what, one of the ways that I I uh, uh, I'd be surprised if I only cited Gerard once in uh, delivered uh, delivered. I, uh, that may be the case, but I I remember the beginning of the book. I set out uh, Gerardian as one of the standards yes. of a successful theology yes. of atonement. Yep. Because what Gerard does is put the atonement in a in the context of cultural history of sacrifice, and um, I think that's 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 profound and it's not been uh but in some ways it's been the the uh the tradition of christian reflection on the atonement because the atonement is reflected on in the light of the old and new law kind of dynamic right you have old covenant sacrifices that fulfill the new um uh that's all within within biblical history i don't know anybody who has tried to work that out on the same scale as gerard has trying to bring in not just the biblical history but uh the the centrality of sacrifice in ancient culture uh the way that the gospel directly targets the functioning of sacrifice in ancient culture and how that opens up uh, uh 
open that, that basically creates a new social world um, right. for Girard. So I think um, Girard was in the back of my mind a lot when I was reading that book, more as something I not necessarily agreeing with the way he had put things together, but trying to come up with a an understanding of atonement that had the same scope. And you know, I was tried to include as much as he had included in his in his theory. The the negatives I think are what uh, he's a hedgehog. Um, yeah, uh, it's a, Isaiah Berlin's book, The Hedgehog and the Fox. Um, Dostoevsky is the hedgehog who knows only one thing, but is a very big thing. Tolstoy is the fox who knows many things, and Gerard is a hedgehog who knows one thing. Yeah, his his theory, um, and again, it 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 explains a lot and it applies without uh, without too much. Um, massaging to a lot of a lot of things, but I, uh, there are times when it feels like it's he's he's trying to force something into yep. the paradigm. Uh, and then the other thing that uh, uh, Milbanks uh, has a critique of Girard in the theology and social theory, okay, where he uh, he he says in his understanding this. I mean, Milbank was writing in the early early nineties, so Girard kept writing for. Um, at least a decade and a half yep. after that. Yep. So this may be a criticism of earlier Girard than later. But Milbank's complaint was that Girard uh, didn't really have a an Augustinian two cities understanding of history. It's rather that there is one city. It's the city of sacrifice. Yeah, uh, and that's the only that's the only concrete social reality that exists in the world. And then you have this one unique individual. Jesus, who violates and undoes the whole thing, right? But um, uh, basically, Milbank's complaint is that um, Gerard doesn't have a developed ecclesiology. There's no, there's no community beyond beyond pagan sacrifice, right? And I think there's something to that. That may be an overstated criticism, yep. but I think that um, it's it, it's not entirely clear to me how Gerard thinks the the gospel creates a people. Yep. Um, he he also uh, I think it's in Job where he's very helpful is seeing is seeing uh, the friends are essentially um, big timing and saying like well God's very mad at you by the way mm-hmm. um, and he's very good at seeing how suspicious that is that that yeah. they would just immediately call back to that but then unfortunately he looks at the Psalms and then he'll say the same thing of like oh no. The right. psalmist is doing a very similar thing, and that's not good. You know, right. it's right. So you, you know, there's like, hopefully, someone reading is good enough to know. Like, well, in this case, though, it's God. God also thinks it's hypocrisy, but the psalmist was good stuff. Yeah. Or you know, yeah, right. It's okay when he does it. Special pleads because he's a psalmist. And yeah, yeah. It's God's word. So, um, something you mentioned though, the hedgehog. <laughs> one of my, one of my, uh. One piece of your content that I return to often, uh, I have a huge love for Dostoevsky. Uh, and you did a lecture, I think, with something called the Anselm House or Anselm Society. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, in Colorado Springs. Okay. Yeah. And I, and it, in, and it was on freedom, Dostoevsky and freedom. Hmm. And you sort of laid out uh, the hedgehog and the fox, the Isaiah Berlin example. And, uh, I was wondering for you, do you see yourself as a hedgehog or a fox? <laughs> um, 
And I think of myself as one or the other on alternate alternate days. I think. Okay. Uh, I yeah. I, it's a. Uh, um, I'm guessing I'm probably more hedgehog than fox in the end, because I think that there are a few dominating things that I that I keep saying and thinking over and over again, and okay. that I find everywhere I go. I'm. I think that that's probably the case. You mentioned earlier when I brought up. There seems to be a, a broad and there's a breadth to your work. And you said it's kind of an optical illusion. Yeah. So for, for the person who's only read your book on Jane Austen, yeah. uh, which you, you, very similar to the Shakespeare plays you're doing, Lit Crit, yeah. dealing in theology as well. Um, if that's all they had read of you, who, what would you tell that person? How would you describe yourself predominantly? Maybe even... Uh, if you are a hedgehog, what is the thing you're coming back to? Who, who, who are you and what is that hedgehog thing? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a biblical theologian in the end. And okay. I'm, as I said, I'm, a, uh, I think I'm, I think of myself as an exegete. Um, okay. That I'm trying to understand how texts work and try to explain texts in illuminating ways. Um, yeah. The, um, an exegete yeah right do you uh do you think in that case you're sort of a you, you sort of come through the hedge backwards on being a generalist would you describe yourself as as a generalist yeah when yeah insofar as the choices are specialist versus generalist yeah i'm a generalist <laughs> yeah yeah um uh come at it from the back way uh i suppose because uh, i'm yeah because I, I, I um it's a generalist, not because I've got a, a wide set of skills. It's because I have one one set of skills that I apply in in different in different places. So yeah, it's. A, I was introduced to you through uh, we read deep comedy in freshman year at Bethlehem, yeah. which was a trip. Yeah, um, for kids, you know, who had never done that kind of thing. You know, yeah. a bunch of kids who love John Piper, and we. We're giving, uh, we're giving who, deep who comedy. Uh, Joe Rigney assigned it. Okay, during sort of the the end of our Greek yeah. New Testament world. So oh, good. Um, so that was a rush. Um, and then at the time you were still it seems like still blogging with First Things. Had you yeah. have you just been going from the early nineties? I think you said to. Yeah, well, I started. I started writing for the magazine. Okay, uh, First Things magazine in the early nineties. Shortly after they started publication i sent started sending them uh, periodic essays um and then uh okay. i had i had my own personal blog for a number yep. of years and then i was invited to move it over to the first things okay so i blogged there for i don't i don't remember how long now okay and then my blog has kind of migrated since then yeah uh i the path AO is if i had to be critical of you dr lighter that, <laughs> that was a bad move the all time <laughs> Worst website of all time. Uh, yeah, that that was a bad move. I, I agree with you. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but I so probably in the years maybe 2013 to 15 ish. I think maybe you moved around 16. But the uh, I, I remember thinking, man, this is the way I want to read. This is some mm-hmm. of the ways that you would blog. I imagine there's a turn of mind that it was maybe very frustrating to. I'm sure you've heard from these kinds of the neater, tidier sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always loved that whatever you were reading. And then somehow it came back to the, that reminded you of maybe the Apostle Paul. And then mm. suddenly we ended in a scene in numbers. Mm. I always enjoyed that. And mm. I thought that's the kind of turn of mind 
uh, I really would want if if I ever let's say we uh, sort of lassoed you into content at Canon Plus, and I said I want you to teach the like uh, people who don't read as much or anything like that. How would you get them, or how would you encourage them to read broadly and to be curious about more? If if you had to if you had to pull people that direction into that turn of mind, yeah. How, how, how would you do that? Yeah. I, I, I guess I'm, uh, I'll assume that, uh, the audience is a Christian audience. Okay. Um, for the purpose of the experiment. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I'm just asking, uh, inviting people to follow a similar progression to what I, I went on, which is to, uh, begin to recognize some of the literary quality and beauty of the Bible. Uh, which I think is uh, as part of what God is communicating to us in Scripture. Scripture is intended to be truth, but Scripture is also intended to be delight. And uh, so, um, uh, learning to learning to read in a way that that uh, enhances your delight in reading Scripture um, that would be my first aim. And if if you know if if it goes no further than that, uh, for many Christians, um, uh, they spend their lives uh, reading the Bible. They have, you know, like the old uh, frontier library of the Bible and the collected works of Shakespeare. Right. You know, yeah. what more do you need? Right. I mean, that's that's about it. Yeah. Um, right. And if if somebody spends their lives uh, deepening their understanding of Scripture, delighting in the beauty of Scripture, then uh, that's an achievement. Uh, but then the next step for me was to think about um, uh, to start picking up, um, particularly uh, you know I'm familiar with Western literature. I'm sure you could find uh, find it in a, a sim- some similar things in other in other uh, in other literatures around the world. But because Western literature is so, so uh, influenced by scripture, right. you pick up Shakespeare. You read. Uh, 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 have a little book on Dante that I did for Canon. Yep. Um, Not to mention uh, Homer and yeah, the, and, right. So yeah, even with the pagan works, I realized that having a having the uh, uh, a biblical framework and having an understanding of how biblical texts worked helped me to grasp what was going on in ancient in ancient literature, uh, even though um, there's there's no there's no uh, influence back and forth, no no recognizable right. influence back and forth right. between those literatures. And you start picking up a Shakespeare, and then you start you start realizing that uh, Shakespeare is deeply um, uh, 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 his language is deeply biblical and formed by scripture and formed by the by the English prayer book. I mean, I think his uh, Shakespeare in politics is right. uh, profoundly Christian. Uh, the, psych- the psychology of Shakespeare, yeah, Shakespearean characters is uh, is deeply Christian. So I think you, yeah. um, uh, I, I want. I mean, my my aim in life is more f- centrally to get people to to uh, to know their Bibles. Yeah, and if that grows into other things, and I'm delighted with that. But I think the church the church needs the Word of God uh, fundamentally. Obviously, Amen. Dr. Lightheart, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Very grateful. Thanks.